you in the middle of one of these banks of seats. If you wouldn't mind just squishing in, because we're running out and we still have people coming in. So just if you could present some empty seats at the end of the rows, that's going to help people a lot. All right. Just want to draw your attention to this orange flyer here. You'll see a little stand at the back um, of the gym. Uh, grab one of these um, on your way out. This is really just um, a kind of infrastructure for us as a community. This is a way of sharing needs that are arising among us as a community and also uh, to publish availability to help with needs. Um, so grab a copy of this Needs News um, and just try to make that part of your kind of regular uh, habit here at Crossroads. We want to make sure that people are aware um, of ways in which help is needed and also have a place where they can make people aware of the help that they could give. Okay, so grab one of those on your way out. Let's pray together and then we're going to get stuck into our text here. God in heaven, I couldn't agree more with what Greg prayed. That's our heart's desire, that you would plough the soil of our lives and enable us to hear uh, your words. And that's just not something that comes naturally. Uh, so we're praying for your Holy Spirit's work in us. Uh, would you please enable us uh, to receive what it is that we're going to hear? And we pray so much um, that you would be uh, planting things in us which can bear fruit even in the circumstances in which you've placed us. We think about the week that we've come out of. I think about the needs that you've placed in our lives, the, the things that we're grateful for, uh, also the things where we're challenged and stretched. Um, Lord God, would you please use what you've got for us here to speak into the actual circumstances that we ourselves bring to the table here. God, you are such a wonder worker uh, that you feed us individually knowing our needs. So we pray, uh, just lifting those needs up to you, that you might... Feed us and equip us this morning from your words. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so um, we're continuing our series in Matthew here. And um, to help us understand the section of the text that we have in front of us this morning, I want to begin by getting a scene into our minds that comes from the Old Testament. Um, we're going to have a fairly lengthy introduction here, and then we're going to be in quite a substantial section of Matthew. You're definitely going to need a Bible in your hands to make this uh, work. So if you don't have a Bible, do just raise um, a hand and um, John or one of the other guys at the back will bring one round to you. Okay, so don't feel ashamed of doing that, but you definitely will need a Bible if you're going to make the most out of what we have here this morning. So as I said, I want to drop a, a scene into your minds. I want you to be picturing something as we begin our message here this morning. The picture that I want uh, to remind you of is the moment from Exodus chapter 32 when Moses came down Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments in his hands, and found himself facing a scene of complete pandemonium in the camp of the Israelites. I wonder whether you remember that one. While he'd been up on the summit of the mountain, the Israelites had lost courage in their leader and in their God. Suddenly feeling their vulnerability, I guess, miles and miles away from home in the middle of the desert, uh, they tried to take control of the situation. They created a golden calf, I guess a reassuringly familiar vision of what God should look like after all the time that they'd spent in Egypt, and they began to worship it. The scene is all the more striking because of the way the whole Bible story builds up to that. So I want to just set it in that context here. Um, taking it all the way back to the very beginning, to Genesis 1, you'll remember how it starts. God looks out on the chaos, and he says, let there be light. And with those words, God immediately differentiates himself from all the other gods of the ancient world. 
There's no contest between God and the chaos in Genesis 1, is there? There's no elaborate battle ending in a kind of grudging accommodation between good and evil, maybe like we see in some of the Babylonian or Egyptian uh, creation accounts. No, God simply speaks and the chaos is annihilated. God creates the universe as a temple to his own goodness and glory. Disorder and destruction flee before it. And he places human beings in that temple. God's people living in God's place where they can enjoy the blessings of his presence and his rule. And they're freed up to joyfully fulfill a great responsibility that God has placed on them. To carry the news of all that blessing to the ends of the earth. That's what we call the kingdom of God. And I'm going to get that up in our familiar diagram here. Okay, everybody seen that one before? Yes. God's people, Adam and Eve, living in God's place, the Garden of Eden, experiencing God's blessing, which is his presence and his rule. But all of that is not so that we can just like kick back in the lazy boy, open up a can of beer and just relax and enjoy our good fortune. It's there so that we can then take those blessings that God has given us and bless the world with them. So that's the final piece of the puzzle. Okay. So that's our uh, kingdom of God right there in Genesis 1. But that perfect picture, you'll remember, is immediately broken. Human beings are not content to accept the role for which they were made. We did not want to be ambassadors of God. We wanted to be God. We stepped out from under God's rule, hoping to achieve godlike independence, believing against all the evidence that we had what it took that we could play God's part, that we could define and protect and control everything ourselves. And our wish was fulfilled. Like the father in the parable of the prodigal son, God said, okay, children, let's see how that goes. And we found ourselves outside the garden, outside the place where men and women can live safely in the presence of God. We wanted to be like God, and so like God, we found ourselves face to face with the chaos. But instead of annihilating it, we were consumed by it. And that's been the story of human existence ever since. Cain and Abel, brother against brother. Hatred, violence, racism, genocide. That's what the world looks like when men and women try to be God. Genesis 6 verse 5 summarizes the situation with a kind of terrifying accuracy. God saw that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And the story could have ended there, couldn't it? God could have justly allowed his creation just to slide back into the chaos from which it came. But amazingly, that's not what happened. God determined to remake Eden. God determined to buy back every piece of his broken creation so that our story might not just serve to demonstrate the stupidity of our belief that we can replace him, but that it might also testify to the goodness and the mercy and the self-sacrificial love of the one who made us all. That's the story of the Bible. And so God spoke to Abraham and made him an astonishing promise. God said to him, go from your country your people and your father's household to the land I will show you and I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great 
and you will be a blessing. That's Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. I wonder whether you caught all the little pieces there. God promised to make Abraham into a great nation, God's people. God promised to lead Abraham into a new land, God's place. And God promised to bless him so that he could bless others. It's the kingdom of God all over again, isn't it? And you see what God is doing. He's promising to redeem it, to buy it back at his own expense. And that's the final element of the diagram that we have been working with as we've been looking through these sermons and previous ones as well. God is promising to buy back everything that was lost at the fall. He's promising to remake Eden. And from this point on, as we work our way through the story, we see God demonstrating his faithfulness to that promise. Abraham didn't look like the most likely starting point uh, for this great enterprise, did he? He was old. His wife, Sarah, was barren. But from that unlikely starting point, God demonstrates, just as he does at the beginning, that though futility and disappointment and death may be undefeatable obstacles for us, they are no match for him. By the beginning of Exodus, Abraham's descendants have become a great nation. God redeems them from Egypt. God leads them through the desert, bringing them under his rule so that they can safely enjoy his presence. Do you see how all these elements of God's promises are actually coming uh, to fruition in Israel's history? Everything looks so good. And then we hit the story of the golden calf. It's a devastating disappointment, isn't it? If you read it in its context... After all this, after all the intricate details of the amazing promises that God made to Abraham, after all the work that God had done over so many years to move those promises towards completion, after all the high hopes of a renewed Eden, hoping that it might be breaking out in the world at last through Moses and his people, that God might be authoring a new beginning in which the chaos would be annihilated for good. The golden calf story plunges everything back into the abyss. When Moses comes down the mountain, he finds chaos par excellence. God had rescued his people from Egypt, but he had not recreated Eden. The Israelites were just as infected with all the evil fruits of the fall as their predecessors were. And that fact becomes kind of obvious when you see the way that God responded to them. God gave them the law, the commands and rituals recorded in the books of Exodus, Leviticus and Numbers. And every single piece of it, from the front to the back, is all about living with chaos. It's not a description of life in a new Eden. It's a description of how sinfulness and suffering can be accommodated. How a holy God can associate with unholy people. It describes how the Israelites could live in a kind of hermetically sealed little bubble of ritual cleanness. uh, A place where God and his people could meet safely. And that turns out to be the story of the whole of the Old Testament. Twice actually as we work our way through through from there uh, towards the story of the New Testament. The promises that God made to Abraham uh, appear to come to a point of completion. Once at the end of this whole Exodus story once during the early years of the kings. But in both cases, the kingdom of God that we see coming into bloom is a pitifully weak reflection 
of what God established in Eden. On both occasions, it shot through with human fallibility and it only lasts for a moment before sinking back into the chaos. So what in the world was God doing? Was God trying and failing to make his intention stick? That's what some people want to tell us. But it isn't the way that Jesus saw it. Jesus saw the ebb and flow of Israel's history as a picture of what God would do when the right time came. Jesus saw the flowering of the kingdom uh, that took place in Exodus and under the kings as little more than a kind of warm-up act, a kind of lo-fi storyboard of God's intentions with human actors playing all the parts, an illustration created to show us the general direction of his thinking, but also to show us that no man-sized solution, no human prophet, priest, or king, however great, could ever deliver the expectations that were set at the beginning of the story. God is not in the business of merely enabling us to live with the chaos. God is in the business of blowing, blowing it back to the place where it came from. And that brings us to the text that we have in front of us today. So will you stand with me for the reading of God's word? We're going to look at Matthew chapter 8. And we're just going to read a few verses here, just the first four. So I'm going to start in Matthew, Matthew chapter 8 verse 1. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. And a man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. And then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. This is God's word. Do be seated. I know that was a short one. But we are going to be in uh, the, uh, the section that we have in front of us runs all the way from there to the end of chapter 9. And I'm going to be reading uh, different pieces of that to you as we go along. So do keep that open. Matthew begins with these words. Jesus came down from the mountainside. Does that remind you of anyone? Matthew wants to put us in mind of Moses, doesn't he? And what does Jesus find when he comes down the mountain? He finds chaos, just like Moses did. In fact, he finds all kinds of chaos. Just skim over the next few paragraphs with me in your Bibles and you'll see it. After the leper, Jesus is approached by a centurion who tells him about his servant who is paralyzed and suffering terribly. Then he meets Peter's mother-in-law who's bedridden with a fever Later that evening, half the population of Capernaum come out to him, people suffering from illnesses and demon possession. Then Jesus crosses over Lake Galilee, making for the Gentile city of Gadara, and he confronts a vicious storm. When they reach the land, two men come out to meet him, who are suffering so acutely from the influence of evil spirits that the whole region that they live in has been kind of depopulated. In chapter 9, Jesus returns to Capernaum and a paralytic is lowered through the roof of the place where he's teaching. Next, he meets a social outcast, the man who, by God's grace, actually ends up being the author of the text that we just read, Matthew himself, the tax collector. The ruler, sorry, and then in chapter 9, verse 18, he confronts death itself. 
The ruler of the synagogue comes to him, pleading that Jesus will restore the life of his little girl. He confronts uncleanness again with the woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. He confronts blindness in chapter 9, verse 27, inability to speak in chapter 9, verse 32. So do you see what's going on in this section of the text? This is an encyclopedia of brokenness. This is the complete taxonomy of all the evil effects of the fall. You couldn't ask for a more complete statement of the chaos that mankind has unleashed and by which we're now held captive than what we have in these two chapters. But look at Jesus' response. Remember, when Moses came down the mountain and confronted the chaos, the response was accommodation. God made a way for holiness to live alongside unholiness. God made a way for cleanness to live alongside uncleanness. God provided an elaborate list of rules and regulations showing us that surrender to his way of doing things is the only way in which we can live safely in his presence. And all of that painted a kind of uh, a picture, a, a walking, talking illustration of what the kingdom of God would be like when it came. But it was not the real thing. But now listen to the words of Jesus when he comes down the mountain and confronts the chaos. Jesus is approached by a leper And there are rules for what a Jew living under the law of Moses should do in a situation like this. Leviticus tells us that a man will also be unclean if he touches anything that makes him unclean. Or any person who makes him unclean, whatever the uncleanness may be, the one who touches any such thing will be unclean. That's what the law says about leprosy. That's the way that it accommodates the chaos of illness and social alienation. It teaches us that uncleanness is catching. It creates little hermetically sealed bubbles of purity that protect the whole and healthy while the world around them falls apart. But Jesus doesn't play by those rules. Jesus reaches out his hand and he touches the leper. And something miraculous happens. Uncleanness does not move from him to Jesus but cleanness moves from Jesus to him. Jesus steps into the chaos and he annihilates it. If you've been watching this event unfold at the time and you'd heard the words that Jesus chose, you couldn't have missed his intention. Matthew's Greek translation of what Jesus probably said originally in Aramaic goes like this, Catharis theti, be clean. And that word has exactly the same grammatical construction as the word that God used to speak into the chaos in Genesis 1. Genes theto, let there be light. Jesus steps up to the leper in all the wreckage of his condition, with all the futility and shame of it, with all the disappointment. And he says, I am willing, let there be clean. Isn't that stunning? All through the Old Testament, God's people have been dealing with pictures of what his kingdom would look like when it came. Time and again, they saw the hazy outline of it, only to be disappointed by the fact that no human being could undo the tragic cosmic consequences of the fall. Even the best human prophets, the best human priests, and the best human kings, even with them, it was all so incomplete, so fragile. The whole story leaves us longing and aching for the actual delivery of, 
of the promises for the day when God himself would come and do what he said in the very first chapter of the Bible, when God would say the word and chaos would not just be accommodated, but defeated, when chaos would become a thing of the past. And what do we think is happening here in Matthew's gospel? Matthew is telling us, this is it. As we go through this section in Matthew, we can't help but see him straining every sinew to make that point absolutely clear. Notice, first of all, the repeated emphasis that Matthew places on Jesus' authority. The Roman centurion that Jesus meets immediately after his encounter with the leper gives us our introduction to this idea, and it's stunning. The centurion has the clarity that comes from having no preconceptions about Jesus at all. He sees what Jesus is doing, and to him, the whole thing looks really pretty familiar. It reminds him of his own circumstances as a soldier. He knows what authority is because he wields it. He wields it over his men, and it's wielded over him by his superiors. When the centurion says, come to a member of his staff, he's not surprised when that person comes. And when he says, do this to one of his servants, he's not surprised to see his servant do it. Why? Because the centurion outranks his staff and his servants. And that's the model that he just applies to Jesus. The centurion looks at Jesus' ministry and concludes that the commanding officer of creation itself has just stepped into the briefing room. And so when Jesus gives orders, sickness necessarily obeys in just the same way that a soldier obeys the orders of his captain, whether his captain is near or far. Can you picture that? Can you picture Jesus focusing his mind on the terrible pain, the terrible paralysis of this uh, servant, um, and saying under his breath, by the command of the Lord of hosts, who is before all things and in whom all things hold together, be whole, jump to it. The same thing is on display in the stilling of the storm in chapter 8, verse uh, 23 to 27. You can't help relating this back to Genesis 1 once you've seen what Jesus is doing here and who he's revealing himself to be. In Genesis 1, God speaks into the churning chaos and sets everything at peace. He creates an environment in which his people can live safely in his presence. And it's exactly the same here in Matthew, isn't it? Jesus exercises the authority of the creator, speaking to the creation. He turns to the wind and the waves and stills them with a word. In Mark's gospel, we even get that telltale little grammatical construction. He rebukes the wind and says to the waves, let there be still. And so the disciples' reaction is not all that surprising. They're amazed and they ask, what kind of man is this? Good question. If this really happened, there's only one person it can be. In chapter 9, when Jesus forgives and heals the paralytic, he addresses the question of authority himself. Most of us will be familiar with the basic setup of this story, the unusual twist in the plot. Four men lower a paralytic down in front of Jesus while he's preaching in a crowded house. We can only imagine the commotion and the mess that it must have caused. But in the end, Jesus finds himself standing uh, amid fragments of the roof with this guy at his feet. His problem is obvious. 
He can't move. Everyone in the room is watching, wondering what Jesus is going to do. And he says, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. In verse 3, the teachers of the law then conveniently vocalize uh, the shock that everyone in the audience must have been feeling. This fellow is blaspheming, they said. They all knew that forgiving sin was God's prerogative. See, if you steal flowers from your neighbor's garden, it makes no difference at all, does it, whether I forgive you. But it's got nothing to do with me. Your neighbor is the person that you've offended, and your neighbor is the person you need to ask for forgiveness. And that's how it goes with God. If we ignore him, if we reject him, if we try to replace him, if we tell him that we're repulsed by his claim to be our king, we want to be king ourselves in his place, he is offended rightly. And he's the only person who can forgive that offense. By forgiving this man's sin, Jesus is claiming to be God quite openly. I want you to know, says Jesus, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Sometimes I think we just have to pinch ourselves a bit to hear how crazy this stuff would have sounded when Jesus first said it. What what on earth does he mean when he says, I have authority on earth to forgive sins? I can imagine a traffic cop saying, I want you to know that I have authority in Grand Rapids to write parking tickets. But it all changes when you add in that little extra phrase that Jesus adds in, I want you to know that I have authority on earth to write parking tickets. That's a crazy thing to say, isn't it? It assumes knowledge of places other than the earth where parking tickets could be written. No human being has that. But that's what Jesus said. So did you just get the sense that something very strange is going on here in these demonstrations of Jesus' authority? That this is not merely a set of human interactions. That this is not just men and women acting out all the parts as we've seen before, creating a kind of tableau of God's intentions for his kingdom. If this is real, this looks like heaven itself breaking in. These stories sound like something is tearing through the fabric of normal reality. Something is invading our world and it doesn't quite fit. In chapter 9, verse 33, the crowd were amazed. And they said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. Now, some pretty amazing things had been seen in the history of Israel, right? But I think they were spot on. And that brings us to the next striking emphasis in Matthew's account. This whole section, if we look at it as a piece, is just absolutely bursting at the seams with descriptions of evil spirits and demon possession, isn't it? In Capernaum, We read in chapter 8, verse 16, that many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word. In the region of the Gadarenes, Jesus met these two guys so hopelessly enthralled that they couldn't control their own words, and they belched out the twisted but frighteningly accurate insights of the demons at work inside them. In chapter 9, verse 32, Jesus meets and heals a man who's been rendered unable to speak by a demon. And once again, we look at this and we ask ourselves, what in the world is going on? This doesn't look or sound like a description of modern day life in Grand Rapids, does it? Demon possession doesn't seem to be as common today as it was in Jesus' time. Now, many of us, I think, are inclined to attribute that to a problem with the quality of our own spiritual perception. If only we were really tuned into God's wavelength, 
Uh, We would see the spiritual battle going on behind every illness and every example of suffering. Now, I don't think that we should doubt that that spiritual battle exists. Remember, just a few weeks ago, Paul was reminding us in Ephesians chapter 6 that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities in the heavenly realms. But I think we sometimes get so focused on that that we miss the point the Bible writers are trying to make here in the Gospels, that during Jesus' ministry, the intensity and the visibility of the underlying spiritual battle was raised to a unique peak of intensity. To see that, you only have to compare the picture we've got here in the New Testament with the picture that we have in the Old Testament. Certainly, there were many spiritually perceptive believers in the Old Testament era. And yet, in that whole period, there's only one instance parallel to these New Testament accounts of demon possession when King Saul was tormented by an evil spirit that drove him to attempt to murder David. Even in the book of Acts, this kind of spiritual combat is only mentioned five times in the whole book. Here in Matthew, we have it three times in just two chapters. So what does that tell us? Well, I think it tells us exactly what our observations about Jesus' authority told us. It's telling us that something of unparalleled significance is happening here. God is no longer merely acting out the intentions for the reestablishment of his kingdom. God is actually doing it, and Satan is throwing every last thing he can at him to make him fail. You know how it goes. The, uh, the protest signs only go up when the president is in town. And so during Jesus' lifetime, every last stinking inclination to vindictiveness, enslavement and decay that exists in our world is kind of vomited up onto the surface to hinder him and to dissuade him from carrying it all to the cross. But Jesus will not be dissuaded. The final theme that jumps out of these stories is the theme of uncleanness, which brings us back to the leper where we started. Do you remember the, uh, the amazing reversal that took place? when Jesus touched him in chapter 8, verse 3. Jesus did not catch uncleanness from the leper. No, the leper caught cleanness from Jesus. And Matthew wants us to see that truth working its way out in this whole phase of Jesus' ministry. When Jesus confronts the demon-possessed men in chapter 8, verse 28, where is he? He's in the region of the Gadarenes, that's Gentile territory. Jesus has stepped out of the hermetically sealed, hygienic little bubble that God's people have built around themselves. And he's engaging with people who didn't even know that there had ever been a kingdom of God, let alone that God was planning to restore it. Jesus was engaging with non-Jews, with people like you and me. Jesus isn't trying to go back to the heyday of Jewish history where the people of Israel had their great prophets and their great priests and their great kings, but Judaism was just for the Jews. Jesus is getting back behind even that to recover the truth that the God of Israel is actually the God of the whole world. He made all of it. All of it descended into chaos and he wants all of it back. When Jesus reached out to Matthew in chapter 9, verse 9, the same issue was at stake. Tax collectors were despised by the Jews of the time, not just because they cheated and defrauded their own people, but because they were in daily intimate contact with the Gentiles who governed the country, and that made them ceremonially unclean. 
when Jesus has dinner at Matthew's house later that evening, sharing a, a table with all of these tax collectors and sinners, the Pharisees were incensed, weren't they? But Jesus told them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, there's a a heavy irony in that reply, isn't there? We know that the Pharisees were far healthier in their own opinion than they were in the opinion of Jesus. But the underlying point about uncleanness is still kind of remarkable, and we mustn't miss it. To a whole race of people who were grown use over centuries to accommodating uncleanness and to avoiding it, Jesus said, I am the doctor and I can cure it. I can end it. Let there be light. Uncleanness is the issue again in chapter 9, verse 20, when he meets this poor lady suffering from bleeding. This one is maybe harder for us to relate to because we live in a society that's compassionate towards people who have medical embarrassments on the whole. But in Jesus' day, a woman like this was a social pariah. She couldn't be touched. That probably accounts for the fact that she felt she needed to creep up behind him. But once again, Jesus' response is amazing. Jesus offers himself to the world in such a way that power goes out from him to restore a woman like this without her even asking. Her uncleanness is not an issue when she meets Jesus. It's not an obstacle. It's a memory. Jesus meets it and blows it away. So do we see what Matthew's doing here in this text? This is the reason why he wrote the book. This is the reason why his own life was changed so profoundly. He's telling us that in Jesus, human history has come to its great tipping point. Forget Alexander crossing the Bosphorus. Forget the Enlightenment. Forget the moon landing. Matthew wants us to see that in Jesus, the root problem for every human being and every human society that has ever existed, the problem of our attempt to be God and all the evil fruit that's come from it is being decisively addressed. No more hoping, no more prefiguring, no more hinting at what the solution might look like with fallible men and women playing all the parts. No more trying to live with order and chaos, uncleanness and cleanness side by side, each in their own discreet little bubbles. Now, Matthew is telling us that in Jesus, God is stepping into the story to actually undo the evil effects of the fall. Jesus is, uh, God is not breaking into the story to accommodate chaos. God is breaking into the story to annihilate it. And we long for that, don't we? Don't we long to be part of a world where there's no more disorder and where there's no more sickness and no more demon possession and no more death? All of us who've tasted the suffering and futility of life in this fallen world have that ache inside us, don't we? Creation is not what it was meant to be. The part of us that tells us that is telling us the truth. The destructiveness and the bitterness, the needless perpetuation of evil that we see all around us, all so dug in and so institutionalized, it leaves us calling out for a solution. It leaves us calling out for a savior. But just as we found throughout Matthew's gospel, uh, when the savior actually comes, it's not quite what we were expecting. What we were expecting, I suppose, 
was that Jesus' arrival would trigger some kind of global chain reaction that would uh, turn our planet back to Eden immediately. We were hoping that the touch that drove uncleanness out of the body of the leper would drive uncleanness out of the universe. But it didn't happen. At least it didn't happen straight away. In fact, we can see that in our text. When Jesus drove the demons out of the men who met him in Gadara on the east side of the lake, did you notice the reaction of the people who lived there? The whole town went out to meet Jesus and they saw him and they worshipped him and rescued worship and uh, welcomed him as their deliverer. If only. No, it says the whole town went out to meet Jesus and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. Stupefying power and goodness had just broken out in their backyard. They'd seen a glimpse of the renewed Eden and yet they came out and pleaded with Jesus to move on. Because when they saw that glimpse of the new Eden, they did not like it. It turned out that Eden cost them far too much They weren't prepared to accept the radical consequences of the Saviour coming to them. When they saw what it would look like to have Jesus in close proximity, they wanted out. And sad to say, we are just like them. Do you know that? All of us want to see God make things right, don't we? But none of us want to hear God tell us what's wrong. Undoing the evil effects of the fall means undoing and sacrificing things that are dear to us. Undoing the evil effects of the fall means undoing and sacrificing things that are part of us. If Jesus had come to implement the kingdom fully in one fell swoop, as we perhaps naively hoped he would, the problem for us is that none of us would be part of it. We want to look around the world and say, oh, if only that person or that institution or that issue could be dealt with, then everything would be all right. But Jesus says, no, I'm sorry, but all of it needs to be dealt with, including you. That's why I think we find chapter 9, verses 14 to 17, slotted in as the lone portion of teaching in the middle of this long stretch of narrative. Turn Uh, to that with me if you will chapter 9 verses 14 to 17 and I'll read it to you right after Matthew's own conversion and right before the healing of the woman who'd been suffering from bleeding and the raising of Jairus' daughter Jesus says this how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he's still with them the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them and then they will fast no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch will pull away from the garment making the tear worse Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Why does Jesus switch gears here to this curious parable about patches of cloth and wineskins? Well, the reason surely is to address this issue of our willingness to accept the kingdom that he comes to establish. The new wine in the parable is the renewed, restored kingdom of God. The kingdom of God that comes blazing into the darkness and the depravity of our world and annihilates it. But the wineskins in the parable are our own hearts. And Jesus is warning us that unless we are renewed, 
We will not be able to handle the kingdom. The same energy that wipes out illness and darkness and destruction will wipe us out as well. And that's why Jesus didn't come to pour out the new wine indiscriminately at his first coming. It wasn't inability or indifference that stopped him re-establishing Eden universally straight away. It wasn't that the whole thing had just got overhyped by the prophets of the Old Testament, but then reality struck and God's people had to set their sights on something more modest. No, it was God's mercy. When Jesus came 2,000 years ago, it wasn't just to show us what the kingdom would look like one day when it came in all its fullness. He came to make it possible for us to receive it. Jesus came to carry our resistance to God's intentions as if it were his own. He came to take our place, to be treated as if his life was an old wineskin like ours. He came to be burst and ruined by the outpouring of God's perfection so that we wouldn't be. He traded places with us, his life for our lives, his new wineskin for our old wineskins. Jesus died to make it possible for us to participate in the kingdom of God. Jesus' death converts us. How? Well, it stops us being like the townspeople of Gadara, appalled by the kingdom because it threatened them and made them conscious of how much they had to lose. No, it makes us poor in spirit, like the leper who knew that he had nothing to lose. Jesus' death stops us being like the Pharisees who accused Jesus of driving out demons by the power of Satan. No, it teaches us to be meek, like the centurion, who despite his own position of authority, was willing to put himself under the authority of the king of kings. If this converting work has happened in our hearts, then like the leper and the centurion, we're now ready to receive this new wine of the kingdom. Jesus is no different today than he was 2,000 years ago. He still calms the storm. He still raises the dead. He still touches unclean people and infects them with cleanness. We can call on him. We can ask him to do this stuff in our own lives and in our families and on our street corners. We can reach out and touch the hem of his garden, the garment. That's all it takes. We can come and kneel before him and say, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Because even though this kingdom is not yet in his people, it's a living, breathing, present reality. One day Jesus will come again to usher in the new creation. One day he will come and pour out the new wine of the kingdom indiscriminately, returning the earth to its original state. One day all the old wineskins that remain among us will be overwhelmed and ruined by the quantity and the sheer quality of what God has in mind for the future. But on that day, there will be many, many hearts and lives where the new wine will find a natural home. Not because they earned it, or because they had some innate taste for it, but because Jesus made them all new at the cross. And ever since that day, they've been living more and more in the powerful reality of the kingdom of God. The question we have to ask ourselves is simply, do we want that? Does it attract us? Does that speak to us? Because if it does, 
something supernatural is happening in our lives, something that only God can do. The Spirit of God has worked or is beginning to work a great change in us, a change away from telling God we want to replace him and towards telling God that we want to come back to him and that we're willing to count all other things rubbish that we might have that one thing. It's the change that the prophets of the Old Testament foresaw would be the signature move of Messiah, removing hearts of stone and replacing them with hearts of flesh, switching out the old wineskins and switching in the new. We have communion set out here this morning. If this is a change that you identify yourself with, or maybe that you want to identify yourself with for the first time this morning, come and take it. If you think about it, there couldn't be a more appropriate symbol of our longing to be filled with the new wine or our dependence on Jesus to make us capable of receiving it than this. This thing is only ours if we own it. So come like the leper and hear the words that Jesus said that flow out of the great sacrifice that he made on our behalf at the cross. Let there be clean. Let's pray. God in heaven, we worship you. And we are so in awe of what it is that you have in mind to do with us and with our world. We pray, Jesus, that you might work this converting work in our hearts. I think each of us knows inside that we have a lot more of the resistance than the acceptance by nature. Lord, there are things in us that you want to and need to wipe away that are very, very dear to us. And yet, Jesus, seeing you for who you are, our maker and our creator, all good and kind and holy, we lay them at your feet and pray that you might come and pour the new wine of your kingdom into new wineskins that you've placed uh, in our hearts. Lord, that we might be citizens and uh, members of that kingdom and that we might then pass on the good, the good news of its blessings to those that we know. In Jesus' name and for his glory we pray. Amen.